Uh, well, good morning and welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Shaq. I am one of the pastors here at Garden City Church. I don't really use my real name. My real name is Shaquille, by the way, but I use Shaq for short. Uh, and I'm one of the pastors at Garden City Church, and I just want to extend a warm welcome to everyone who has come today. Those who are new, welcome. Uh, we forget how hard it is and how difficult and how challenging it is to join a new church. So those who are joining today, thank you for your courage to come today. So we're going to um, jump right in and continue our Advent series. We have been paying close attention to the anticipation of the Messiah through the book of Matthew. Uh, for those who have missed the first three weeks, we're going to give you a little recap, a little bit of taste of what you missed. In the first week, Amanda taught us about um, the genealogy of Jesus and reminded us that Jesus is, one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and promises. And because of that, as children of God, we can be adopted and we can experience hope and freedom through Jesus. In week two, we focus on the humanity and obedience of Joseph when he finds out the strange yet wonderful conception of the promised Messiah. And last Sunday, Pastor Dennis, he's behind the TV, he taught us that the Savior that we anticipate is a king who will disrupt and challenge the status quo and meet us where we are at and lead us out of captivity into eternal freedom. So this Sunday, we're going to be introducing a new and fascinating character, John the Baptist. In my language, we say AKA, so I'll say John the Baptist, AKA, and give him a different name. So John the Baptist, AKA the forerunner, AKA Jesus' cousin, the one who was miraculously born from an old couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, the one who will prepare the way for the coming Messiah. So we're going to jump in to Matthew 3, but before we do that, we're going to pray. I think it's good to pray and invite God into this. So if you all can bow your heads and position yourself to hear from the Lord, and let's pray. God, with the busyness of this holiday, our, our minds are consumed with so many things. Help us to slow down and to hear and to taste, to take in what you have for us today. Position our hearts to know you, to sense you, to feel you, to accept you, to embrace you today. Lord God, and I pray that you will speak your words through me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you can look to the screens, I have NLT, Matthew 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I always say get a Bible. I'm like partially serious and partially joking. But, uh, but yes, look to the screen if you don't have your Bible. No offense. This is how it begins. In those days... John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of God, or heaven, is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, 
He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven by coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all over Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, "We're, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. This means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with those, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not worthy even to be a slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing air, gather the wheat into his barns, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So after 2,000 years of redemptive history recorded for us in the Old Testament prophecy, God's voice becomes silent. And there was no single word from God in a prophetic utterance for a period of 400 years. The last prophecy in the Old Testament was recorded and found in the book of Malachi, verse 4, verse 5 to 6, where the Lord says to his people, Look, I am sending you a prophet Elijah, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will strike, come and strike the land with a curse. So here at the end of the Old Testament, God is saying, instead of bringing a curse upon the world, he will bring back the voice of Elijah. So 400 years later, God will fulfill that prophecy through the person of John the Baptist. So Matthew introduces us to John the Baptist in chapter 3. Matthew uh, begins uh, this, this, this chapter by skipping over the childhood and young adulthood of Jesus and begins chapter 3 by saying, in those days, which would be about 30 years after the end of chapter 2. Matthew tells us in in verse 1 that John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. This is a strange way to start a ministry. For a church planter, this would not be a great strategy to reach people. So John seems to be spending a lot of his time in the margins. He's removed away from Jewish society. He's removed away from the oppression of the Uh, religious leaders, the wilderness has become his temple, and his altar was the Jordan River. 
So for reference, the wilderness has some theological significance. As we can look back throughout Scripture, the wilderness became a familiar place for God's people. It was a place where God liberated them from the oppressive system of Egypt. It's a place of revelation. It's a place of preparation. It's a place of punishment. It's a place of testing. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that John would come from the wilderness to be prepared and to be tested. So this new prophet that we're talking about comes from a place of the wilderness, preaching this message of repent of your sins, turn to God, for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. That word repentance, I don't know if it will come up on the screen or not, but that word repentance is the reversal of direction, the reversal of attitude, the reversal of behavior, the reversal of point of view. I have good friends of mine who are in the military, um, and I was trying to ask them about this word repentance, and he gave me an example about attention. When they do attention, they do this like 180-degree thing, and they turn around, and they turn the opposite way. So that's like an image of what repentance is. It's turning from one direction and completely to another direction. So no matter in regards to this word repentance, no matter the person or place we hear from, the message of repentance is difficult. Put yourself in this, in this audience, put yourself in this context that we as people would not be able to take that in. Like, would you be able to listen to John the Baptist? If, this, if we heard this message in downtown Pittsburgh, we know we, have, we heard people downtown Pittsburgh with signs that says, repent, the Lord is coming, he's coming. Or if we hear it in the walls of ministry or from a spouse or loved one, many of us would not hear it or accept it because we feel threatened and defensive. We say things like, you don't know me. You don't know my life. Or better yet, the better phrase, only God can judge me. Right? So we have suffocated and deflated the prophetic voices of our day by clinging to pride. All we want is a message of grace and peace and love, not repentance. Because repentance, church, is costly. Repentance disturbs. Repentance calls us out of our systems of control, of power, and better yet, as Americans, comfort. We like comfort, right? We all, look, all you got to shake your head like, yeah, do like comfort. But John's proclamation did two things. One, it was a prophetic call to the abandoned lives of unfaithfulness, injustice, and a false allegiance, and to turn back to a faithful living in the covenant. And two, it aroused political fears and threats to the present empire in Judea. See, John voices his reason for this call of repentance, not just to say it, not just to say repent, but he said it because 
the kingdom of God has come near. It was no longer distant. It was no longer silent, but the kingdom of God has come near to them. So what did he mean when he said the kingdom of God has come near? So during the time of John's ministry, kingdom was political language. The word kingdom was political language. So John's hearers knew about other kingdoms, the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of Rome. See, many first century Jews could identify with the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. They eagerly wanted God to send them a leader who will overthrow Roman rule, Roman rule and make Judean, Judea an independent nation again. A nation of righteousness, a nation of glory and blessing, a nation that would be attracted for everyone. This concept of kingdom of God was appealing, although it was not very well defined. The kingdom of God that John was describing was something different from those kingdoms. It was a spiritual kingdom where God would, one, establish his rule and reign in people's hearts and lives. Two, this king and his kingdom would overcome all the forces of evil. Three, the king will remove the consequences of sin from the world, including death and all that diminishes life. And lastly, this kingdom will rebirth a new creation of order, an order of righteousness and peace and love. See, this was not a popular message. Nor would this message make any of us or, any, or John any friends. See, John was not a common kind of guy. He was not soft-spoken. He did not marry his high school sweetheart and have two lovely children. He didn't have a two-car garage. He ate locusts. He ate weird things. He wore shabby clothes. He wasn't normal compared to our thing. Everything about John's appearance shows a different way of life centered on the provision and faithfulness of God. His lifestyle was in clear opposition with political and wealthy elite. So when the people of Judea, and according to John's gospel, saw and heard John the Baptist, they said, who are you? We've never seen anyone like you. Who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no. He said, are you the prophet? He said, no. John replies and confirms his prophetic role and message in the words of Isaiah by saying, I am the voice shouting in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The Hebrews have fallen on bad times quite apart from Roman oppression. Rigid uh, Jewish uh, traditions characterize their religion. The roots of legalism has been growing in Malachi's day, now ran deep. Jewish tradition was largely replaced with the Bible. We see that now today, that our tradition has largely replaced the Bible. Therefore, someone needed to come and cut a path through this tangled undergrowth of the deadening man-made tradition 
And that person was John. It needed to happen. So from John's preaching and lifestyle, the narrative now elaborates on the regions he reached. In verse 5 to 6, Matthew says, People from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and from all over the Jordan Valley went out to see him. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. The first group comes from Jerusalem, which is surprisingly because of the negative way Herod and all of Jerusalem responded to Jesus' birth. If you remember last week, Dennis shared about how threatened Jerusalem felt when the king, the Messiah, was born. So it was surprising that Jerusalem responded to John's message. Notice in verse 5 that it says, All of Judea and all of the region along the Jordan were responsive and open to the kingdom of God, despite the political and religious opposition. So as they confessed their sins, John baptized them in the Jordan River. And that Jordan River is significant also. It's the river that through which the Israelites passed as they entered the land after their journey in the wilderness. This echoes that John's baptism, at least in part, is an act of liberation from the oppressive political and religious system to salvation from sin to Jesus. The river was significant. It was valuable. But many of you may ask, and while I was reading this, I was asking myself, is why did the Jewish people need to be baptized? Weren't they the chosen people? Weren't they the chosen race? Why did they need the forgiveness of sin? So to call a Jew to repent and to be baptized was countercultural because baptism was reserved only for Gentiles to be converted to, uh, to Judaism. That's a hard word to pronounce, sorry. I try to like slow down, but I'm like, yes, you heard me. Uh, but it was a one and done ritual indicating a shift in alliance from their old gods to the God of Israel. So to do this, John is essentially saying that unless the Jews were willing to repent, they were not really Jews and could not count on the promised blessings God has made for his chosen people. So that became very, very, very offensive to the Jewish people, not only them, but also to the religious leaders. So in verse 7 and 12, we'll kind of see John's immediate hostility towards the religious leader and their kind of response to him. So beginning at verse 7, it says, but when, they saw what, what, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize. To pause there, that phrase, coming to watch him baptize, can also be translated in Greek as coming against the baptism. So he responds by saying this. It's very harsh, but he said, you brood of snakes. He didn't say it like that, but he probably screamed it because there's an exclamation point there. You brood of snakes! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. 
don't just say to each other, we're safe because we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. He created us from dust. It won't be hard for him to create God, people from stones. Even now in the acts of God, judgment is poised, ready to severe the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not bear produce good fruit will, chop down, will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. That sounds a lot like Jesus in John 15, right? So in his harsh insult, John does five things. One, he compares his audience of the religious leaders to be children of Satan, brood of snakes. He tells them that the wrath of God is on its way to separate the children and sons of vipers and the sons of God. But he also extorts the leaders to bear fruit worthy of repentance. He tells them that their Jewishness, their religious background, their family heritage would not save them from judgment. But they can escape the wrath of God by fleeing to the right direction, namely the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John continues to proclaim but his audience changes. From rebuking the religious leaders, he now addresses the other groups of those who were baptized. He tells them, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one is coming who is greater than I am. John positions the crowd to search after Jesus the Messiah, who will baptize them in his spirit, in his spirit with a purifying fire. This is the promise of the outpouring of the spirit in Ezekiel 37, 14. This is connecting a lot in, from the Old Testament to the New, where the Lord says this, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return to your own land. Then, yes, you will know, then, then, you, will, then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken. In the Old Testament, Jewish people um, had Holy Spirit visitations. He would hover over them for a minute, and then he would depart from them. So, but what John is saying that the, Jesus was baptized them in the Holy Spirit. They never experienced anything of this nature. We have a good. We have them in us, and I'll talk about that later. But they never experienced anything of this nature. So when the promise of the Holy Spirit was coming, it was to come and to rest and dwell in them. And because of that, the kingdom of God can be tasted and can be settled upon them. So, again, I, I, told you, I talked to you guys a lot about con context, and I've learned a lot by reading this. You guys are probably wondering, what does this passage really answer? What does it say to me personally? What does this mean for us today? Well, I have three things to share, and I stole this idea from... Dennis, last week, I'm like, oh, three things to share. I'm going to steal that. Um, the first one <laughs> is Advent teaches us that preparation brings greater sweetness for the coming Messiah. Advent awakens us to contemplate and Savior and actively wait for his second arrival. But we have a skewed sense of preparation. In our culture, 
Preparation means you must be mindlessly busy with tasks and consume a lot of things. The holidays are a prime example. Even though we may be off work, most of us, we are more busier than before. We must buy gifts. We have to buy gifts. We have to consume. We have to decorate the tree. We have to meet with people and family and friends. We have to travel. We have to do a lot of things before we get to leave. We are consumers. All of us are. So our idea of preparation robs us from the significance of what is coming. We have become fearful, anxious, apathetic, earthly contented people. I'm going to say that again. We have become fearful, anxious, apathetic, earthly contented people. We feel like the kingdom of God is distant. We say things like this, and I say things like this. The kingdom of God will never come in my lifetime. Maybe 2,000 years later it will. This is why we don't take preparation seriously. We have disconnected the king from his kingdom. It's not just any king we are waiting for. But it's the king of the universe, the king of the cosmos, the king of creation. It's about his status. About, it's about what he's bringing. It's about his peace. It's about his order. It's about his justice. It's about his wholeness, his love, his protection, his healing, his freedom. Are you waiting for that? Like, think about it. Are you so consumed with life that you almost forget about preparing for him? So my question is to you, think about, like, take an internal look at yourself. You can hear me and you can leave this place and forget anything I have told you. But look at inwardly. How has your comfort caused you to forget about the coming king? Your comfort. How do you prepare? When we come and sing, when Kenny comes, I'm not even looking at my notes because I know the spirit is like, you, you got you to you get something here. But when we come and sing, like how do you prepare? Do you know how to prepare? We don't understand the idea of preparation because we are consumers. I'll spell it out for you. C-O, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> but we are consumers. I am. I don't need Christmas gifts, but I get it. I have everything I need. But we don't know how to prepare for the coming Messiah because we are busy people, anxious people, fearful people, earthly contented people. So yes, think about that. How do you prepare this this week? You have time to, to do that. Two, Advent teaches us the beauty of repentance. Advent is about returning our faces back to the Creator. That's what John was trying to do, is turn their faces back to the Creator. Repentance is so much more freeing and life-giving than what most people perceive it to be. 
Repentance begins in the body with the awareness that there is something in our sense of self that does not belong. It's the beginning of, of an awareness that it is time to come home. I'm pretty sure all of us know the prodigal son, right? That story. That's what repentance looks like. Turning back home. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, it talks about repentance, and this is what it says. For the kind of sorrow God wants for us to experience leads us away from sin. Again, this is what repentance looks like. He wants us to, to lead us away from sin, the things that easily entangle us. He wants us to lead us away from sin and result in salvation. There is no regret for this kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. We get the two mixed up all the time. We think repentance is mean like I'm a bad person, God doesn't want to look at me, I'm shameful. But godly sorrow is saying, lead me away from sin so I may receive salvation. So when we repent, it is for the hope of restoration of all things lost. Again, when we repent, it is for the hope of restoration of all things lost. Repentance is not always easy because you're calling people and ourselves to change. It should be something that opens our hearts, open the door of our hearts to joy to freedom, to play, to delight, and connect with God and other people. And if, it does, and if it does not, we do not know the true nature of repentance. Repentance addresses our false allegiance, our terror, our fear, all of these realities we need to begin to engage in. When we begin to search for unconditional love where it cannot be found, again, when we start to search for other loves that cannot be found, it will lead us to a path of death. And lastly, your nationality, just because you're an American, will not save you. Christian country, huh? Your religious background, just because you come to Garden City Church won't save you. Your doctrine, what you believe, will not save you, although those things are good. Your family heritage, you grew up as a pastor's kid. Your pastor is your dad. Or growing up in a church, being connected with youth group very young, those things won't save you, although those things are good. But what will save you is who? Oh, look, I love that. I'm going to be getting y'all to talk a lot, but those things will not save you. So my question is to you is what needs to be restored? And is repentance required? Examples, your marriage. Most of you guys are probably married or 
whatever it is, family, you guys are getting together with family or not getting together with family, does repentance is required with that? Is it pornography? Is it greed? Is it stinginess? What is it? You know your life better than I do. What needs to be repented? It's for the hope that all things can be restored. I'm not calling you to repentance to say shame on you, but I'm calling you to repentance because something good is going to happen to you. And thirdly, Advent reminds us of the greater gift we yearn for in the depths of our souls. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit. He no longer just like hovers over the earth, but he wants to come and dwell in us. You guys ever think about that? Like every, every, every area we move to, the Holy Spirit is like, I'm with you. Every walk, every step that I'm in you, around you, before you, behind you, that I want to be a part of your life. So God has made his home in us and given us the stability, peace, and strength we need in this turbulent world. Without the Holy Spirit, we're just living. But with the Holy Spirit, we can become alive and serve his kingdom. That's what Advent is about. So in this season of Advent, how can you become more aware of that promise of the Holy Spirit? That is the greatest gift. Not about gifts. It's about his presence. Not present. Presence. So before I close in prayer, I want to do something different. Never done this before. But... um, I'm going to give you some space. This, it's not going to be long. I'm going to give you like some space to quiet your heart and really take whatever posture it is, whether you're before the Lord, whether you're standing, and just allow him to really identify and highlight areas in your life where you need to repent, where you need to turn back your face to him. And then as, I, as you're doing that, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do a what I call it a communal repentance, where I will speak on the behalf of God and say, God, we have turned our faces against you. We have sinned against you. I am, by nature, a lover of sin. And I always need to come before the Lord and say, I love you, and I'm sorry that I have turned my face against you. So as you quiet your heart, if you do that for a couple of minutes, I'm going to just give you the space. And silence is sometimes new to us. So, Lord, would you highlight places in us where we need to let go, places where we need to repent? Would you speak to us right now, Lord?